you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We have been working our way through Luke's Gospel, and over the last few weeks, we have seen specifically that from Jesus' life and ministry, He has made enemies. That the religious leaders in Israel have not had, by and large, a positive response to what Jesus has done and what He has taught. And yet, in the background, we've also seen that there are disciples. There are those that are following Jesus. And here, Luke wants to shift our focus away from Jesus' enemies to His followers. In fact, what he wants us to understand that in gathering together, in calling followers, and here we will see apostles to himself, what Jesus is in fact doing is gathering together a new people of God, that he himself will lead under a new covenant. And as we think about what this passage tells us about this new people of God, we are forced to ask ourselves, are we part of this new people of God? And if we are, are we living as if we are this new people of God. And what we will see is that all of that hinges on one thing, whether or not we have seen and understand and trusted in Jesus Christ and the fullness of His life and work for us. So this morning I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 12 of Luke chapter 6. And these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. And with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. May God bless the reading of his word. As we think about these verses here, what we see again are is a description of this new people of God. And what we first see is that this new people, God's people, are built on prayer. They are built on prayer. In the context of Luke's gospel, what is taking place here is about to be a fundamental shift in the ministry of Jesus in the history of redemption itself. Everything is going to change as a result of these verses. And notice, before it begins how Jesus begins, Luke says he begins with prayer. He went out to the mountain and to pray, and and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to himself and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now, In some ways, we could spend our entire time on verses 12 through 13 this morning. Think about what this is saying. Jesus is getting ready to choose his disciples. And so in preparation for that, he stays up all night getting ready in prayer. In some ways, we we need only say this, but how much more should prayer be important for our lives if the Son of God himself sees it as important for his own? How much more for our life and ministry should we be before God the Father if 
God's own Son is before the Father. Nevertheless, what, what kind of prayer, what, what can we learn as we seek to imitate Jesus here? What kind of prayer do we see Him praying? What was His prayer like? First of all, it was, it was humble prayer. It was humble prayer. As we read through the Gospels and think about Jesus as the Son of God, it's often, frankly, easy to forget that He is also the second Adam. Uh, previous generations uh, fought hard to, to show convincingly from the Scriptures that the deity of Christ is not just something that's made up, but is something clear and true and obvious from the Bible that Jesus Himself taught. And so there is the temptation for that to, to swing in our emphasis where we, we hold on to, we believe what is absolutely true, that Jesus is God, and yet we sometimes forget He's also human. He's fully human. Far too often he becomes something like Superman in our mind, walking through the pages uh, of the Bible impervious to all that would come against him. But that is not the case. That wasn't his life at all. When he laid aside his divine glory in the incarnation, he did not lay aside his divine nature or essence, but rather the privileges of that power. And thus, like all of us should be living, he lived in total and under dependence on God the Father and his empowering presence by the Holy Spirit. It was not without reason that when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes upon him and Jesus says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. That Spirit of God is the means by which he will know the hearts of men, he will be able to heal those in sickness and disease and ultimately proceed faithfully to the cross. So later we will hear him say things like, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus has not come under his own authority, with his own power, with his own glory. Rather, he is dependent upon the Father, and therefore he humbly calls out to God in prayer. Moreover, Jesus also displays persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. We are told that Jesus continued in prayer all night. Now, this is the only time we actually have an explicit reference to Jesus spending uh, all of the night in prayer. That doesn't mean that he didn't do it at other times, but what that should highlight for us again is his humanity. Humans need sleep, right? I mean, I need sleep. I think most of you need sleep. In fact, I've seen some of you when you haven't had sleep, and you need sleep, right? Jesus needs sleep as well. He's human. So most nights he's getting his 40 winks. But here, he's on the eve of something momentous, something important, something essential. This task in front of him, this appointing of these 12 men who are going to be, as we will see later, the, the literally the foundation of the new people of God. What does he do? He says, I need to pray. I need to sort this out of my mind. We're not told what he prayed or what it was like, but I almost have this sense of he has this this mass of disciples in front of him, a lot more than just the, the 12, and he's going through one by one. What about this disciple, God? Here are his strengths, here are his weaknesses, here is his character. Is this one who will be an apostle? And if it's yes or it's no, and he moves on to the next one. Perhaps he is, he is asking for, for God to continue because as we'll see in, in the coming weeks, it is not just the gathering of the apostles now, but he lays a foundational teaching about what it means to follow him. So maybe he's asking for wisdom and clarity in his mind as he begins to teach and to preach because this setting aside of the apostles is not just saying, okay, now your apostles go on and do something. It is now your apostles, let me train you in what that means. 
Let, let me tell you and show you and invest in you for the next three years so that you will know what it means to be apostles of the new people of God, the leaders, the, the foundation of my church. Nevertheless, before this important and momentous thing, Jesus says, my need for sleep is far outstretched but my need for fellowship with God. And so all through the night, he pours himself out before his heavenly father. You can imagine he goes up on the mountain at night and he sees the sun set and the moon rise. And as he continues to pray, the temperature begins to drop. The animals are out. Things are happening all around him. And then as, as the temperature begins to change again, as the moon falls, the sun begins to rise, his, his clothes and his skin and his hair are soaked in the morning dew. And he comes off of all of that and says, now we are ready to begin this new phase of ministry. Now we are beginning to lay down the foundation for the new people of God. I wonder if we even have the desire to spend an entire night in prayer, let alone if we've ever actually done it. To display that kind of persistence because we have so felt our desperate need of God. For most of us, prayer is a struggle. The question is, how can we grow to imitate Jesus? How can we, how can we come to be so humbly dependent on, on God and persistent in our prayers to Him? Well, the first thing is that you should not expect to to give five or ten minutes a week to prayer and suddenly be praying through the night the next day. That's, that's not the way life works. That's not the way we are built apart from an unusual outpouring of God's Spirit. And so my first bit of advice is this. Start small and be disciplined. Start small and be disciplined. Make a list of needs. Read over a passage of Scripture to gain encouragement. Set an alarm for ten minutes and pray. Pray until you pray. Do that every day for two weeks and then up the timer to 15 minutes. Do that for two more weeks and then move it up to 25 or 30 minutes. I think you get the point here. You are laying down tracks of godly disciplined behavior so that what becomes something necessary will become something delightful and happy and pleasurable for you so that no longer will you be worried about the clock and the time and thinking, I don't know what to pray, I'm out of ideas, but rather the, the, the alarm will be going off after an hour telling you, hey, you better get in the shower or else you're going to miss work. And you'll think, where did the time go? But that doesn't just happen overnight. You've, you've got to plan for it. You've got to start small and be disciplined, but you will find over time that the discipline, the duty will give way to a joyous, deepening relationship with God. Secondly, secondly, be encouraged by God himself. Be encouraged by God himself. Remember God the Father, the one to whom you are praying. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is both just and merciful. He is our Father who delights to hear and answer the prayers of His people. He is not only able to answer prayer, He is willing to answer prayer. Then remember Christ and what He has done for you. Remember God the Son, His life, and how every righteous deed and every temptation overcome was for you who put your faith in Him. Remember how even now he intercedes on your behalf at the right hand of God the Father. Listen to him. He is my brother. She is my sister. They have put their faith in me. 
God, be merciful and grant their requests. Finally, remember the gift of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Remember how the Father and the Son have sent Him into your heart that you might call out to God in prayer with confidence in God's love for you as His adopted child. Remember these things and be encouraged to pray that we might imitate the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who founded our entire existence on prayer and therefore lays the example that we ourselves might continue our existence bathed in prayer. The new people of God are built on prayer and secondly, they are sent with authority. They are sent with authority. Luke says that Jesus called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, earlier I said we had more than 12 and that's true, but we don't have any idea what the the actual number is of people that are following Jesus at this point. Later we're going to get to chapter 10 and Jesus will set apart 72 disciples from the rest of this group and call them to a specific mission. So we know there's probably not just 73, right? He probably doesn't say, okay, uh, I got 73, you 72, you're going to go out and do this special mission. The one, sorry, you're just not cutting the mustard. Probably not the case. Probably at least double that, maybe even triple that number of people are following Jesus at that time. It's in this context of this mass of people who are following Jesus that he says, all right, all of you come here. It's these 12 that I'm calling out and I am appointing you to be apostles. So what is an apostle? What is the significance? Well, the word simply means one who is sent. But in the context of Jesus calling apostles to himself, there's a depth of meaning that goes far beyond that. First of all, as those being sent with authority, the apostles were given authority to represent Jesus. Authority to represent Think about today all the ambassadors that we send out to the world, even ambassadors to uh, the United Nations. They're not only representing the interest of the American people, they are representing the president himself. Why? Because even in this day of technology and, 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 uh, and, and uh, jets and everything else, the president can't be everywhere at once. He can't be in every country, meaning with every diplomat and every president or every king or queen. He, he can't do that. So he sends out these emissaries, these ambassadors, and they are authorized to represent the president. They are given certain uh, conditions and certain limits and certain rules, but nevertheless can enter into treaties and agreements on the president's behalf. Likewise, the apostles were trained to represent Christ to the world. The reason why he lives with them for three years is so that they can be intimately connected to his life, to his ministry, that they can observe, they can see, and they can be trained for when Jesus ascends back to the Father, he needs representatives in this world. And that's what the twelve are called to be. In fact, when you look at the opening uh, verses of the book of Acts, you see that as Jesus ascends, they have it in their minds that they are not in the unique way in which he saves humanity, but in the terms of preaching and teaching and healing and calling people to faith in God, the apostles believe they're actually continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ. But they're not starting something new. They're simply following in his footsteps. They had the authority to represent Christ and proclaim the good news of his saving work to the world. But secondly, they had the authority to lead. They had the authority to lead. Jesus picks these men and invests in them an authority to lead. Lead what? To lead the church. And they lead on a different level than anyone else. Every local church has leaders. Some denominations that have uh, umbrella um, positions above multiple churches, they have leadership. But no one, 
No leader today sits on the same level of authority as the apostles. Even when Judas the traitor needs to be replaced, it's clear not just anyone can take his place. There is a list of standards of qualifications that need to be met that puts that individual on the same level as the other 11. Even Paul would not have normally been qualified except that the Lord Jesus Christ in resurrected form appears directly to him and directly teaches him and trains him about himself and how to read the Old Testament in the light of him and how to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. This direct commissioning gives these men direct authority to lead the church and even to write scripture. Ultimately, every book that we have in the New Testament has come either from the pen of an apostle or from one closely associated with him. So you say, Mark's gospel. Who was Mark's mentor? The apostle Peter. It's essentially Peter's gospel. And we go on and on and on. No one today could say, well, look, there was Peter, there was John, there was Matthew, and now there's me. And you should follow me as an apostle. Sorry, bro, not going to happen. Not going to happen. You, you, you don't rise to that level of authority that these men do. And here's the, here's the other end of it. So sometimes they will acknowledge some kind of authority, some kind of uniqueness, but then here's what they'll say, Jesus trumps them all. Now, on one level, that's true because he appoints them, right? He, he, he is God in the flesh, and his authority does trump them all. But what do we see in this passage and throughout the rest of the New Testament? But Jesus is investing the apostles with authority. So, so you've got some people that like to call themselves red-letter Christians, Meaning the red letters in the Bible, the words of Jesus, are more important than anything else, and that's where they're going to stake their claim. So if the Apostle Paul says something, or the Apostle Peter says something that they don't really like, because it doesn't match their ethical beliefs that are really based on the current culture, they'll just reject it because Jesus didn't say it. If Jesus didn't say it, it's not really that important, and we can just say we can ignore the other stuff that we don't like about who can serve, about, about the nature of sexuality and marriage, and so many other things. That doesn't make any sense if these men have been invested with the authority to lead and to write scripture from Jesus himself. If they are Jesus authorized leaders, then how can we not take what they say on the same level of authority as what Jesus himself says in the red letters? I mean, are we going to say that Jesus made a mistake? That he picked people that ultimately got it wrong and we can throw out what they said? It sure seems like a waste for that whole night of prayer, doesn't it? Somehow he wasn't tuned into God right? I don't think so. It doesn't work. But the question is, fundamentally, even if we don't say that, are we ignoring what they say? Because the apostles along with Jesus give us a tremendous kingdom ethic about what it means to love your neighbor with some very specific commands and directions. And the question is, do we like those commands and directions and therefore seek to obey them? Or perhaps we don't like them but say, this is from God, therefore it is good for me to obey them, God help me. Or do we simply say, eh, I'm not really concerned about that because Jesus didn't say it and I don't really like it. It makes me look like a freak in the 21st century United States of America, so I'm done with that part. The apostles still have authority to lead even today because they have penned the very words of God. And in that sense, they are still an authority over us in our lives. Paul will call 
In Ephesians 2, the apostles, the foundation of the church. There can only be one foundation to a building, and without it, the building will collapse. So the apostles are unique. There can never be any like them, and it's to our detriment to ignore them. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the apostles also set a certain kind of basic pattern for us as well. There are, as it were, capital A apostles like the ones that are mentioned. But in another sense, there is little a apostles and it's every Christian who's ever believed because we are also sent by the risen Christ into this world to represent him. We are given authority to grant salvation, not because we're special, but because we bear the word of the gospel. And thus, whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That, that's not an apostolic, big A, 12 guys only. That is simply opening the word of the gospel to people and seeing salvation come to our lives. That is the great privilege and responsibility that all of us have as Christ commissions us and sends us out into the world. So as we, as we, as we think about passages like this, something like Isaiah 6 should ring in our minds. As we see this amazing vision of God sovereign on His throne in all of His glory. High and lifted up. And He asks the prophet, who will go for us and proclaim this glorious reality of my holiness and my mercy? And He says, send me, Lord, send me. And we think of ourselves as Christians, not as apostles on par with the twelve, but as little a, as, as simply those who are sent to represent Christ in the world. We should be saying, whether it is to the most remote village or an, or an island where no Western person has been, or maybe it's just the, 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 the grocer that we see every single Friday, or the guy that works across from us or sits next to us at school, we should be saying, when we look at them, send me, Lord. Send me, give me the words to say, give me the great joy of proclaiming your salvation. Third, this new people of God are not just built on prayer, sent with authority, they are also called from the nations. They are called from the nations. I think verses 14 through 17 are probably some of the most amazing in the Bible. Notice first that these apostles and by by pattern all of God's people are called in diversity. They're called in diversity. Think about the people we have listed here. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Now for some of you that might just be like a list out of the phone book. Although for others of you do you even use a phone book? Do you know what a phone book is? You know, I'm, um, I'm old school enough, I like a phone book, but Melinda throws it out because she says we don't need it, just, just, just Google it, just look them up online. I say, oh, okay, but um, if you have an extra one, I'll, I'll take it. Um, the, the, the point is, this group is incredibly diverse, and you, you may not actually know how diverse it is. John was a young guy, maybe only 16 years old, when Jesus calls him to be an apostle. No pressure there, John. Peter and all the other guys are older. So he's already, uh, in some sense, the kid brother to the group. He's apparently single, but there are other guys like Peter who are married and even have kids. Eleven of these guys are country boys. Judas Iscariot is from the city. That says something, doesn't it? 
Simon is called the zealot, not because we think, oh, he was zealous for God. No, no, no. He, he was like a political rebel. The zealots were an official group that said, let's bring down Rome because we don't want Jews to be oppressed anymore. We're for Israel. So we're taking out centurion guards and we're, you know, doing all kinds of mischief to try and run them out. We're trying to, to, to raise a rebellion. Right along next to him, this guy who hates Rome is a guy who works for Rome, Matthew, the tax collector. Most of these guys are poor. And even though he's given up his future income, Matthew had been wealthy so before this, and so I'm sure he had some nice clothes. So not only do you have all these different things, but just visually to look at him, you've got Matthew with the ancient Israel equivalent of Armani suits on next to guys wearing Levi blue jeans. It's a pretty diverse group. Some are brothers, some are outsiders. Some have business experience, some have political experience. One will ultimately betray the Savior who loved him and called him for a measly 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus looks at all these guys as this, as this mass of disciples, maybe, maybe 140, 150 people, men and women gathered together, and he starts naming these guys. He says, come on, come on, come on. He looks at these 12 and he says, you guys are my apostles now. You're my top men. Now let's go. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't do that. I mean, unless God was very specifically telling me who to pick, I would be trying to think about who's going to get along. Who, 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 has, who has talents and abilities that complement one another? I don't want any crazy fights. I don't want any disagreements. So this guy has some odd beliefs. Uh, you know, I don't want the zealot. You know, I don't want that guy on my team. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he pulls from all these different places and he brings them together and says, you're going to be my team. More than that, all these guys are nobodies. There's some evidence that, that we might talk about at the end of the gospel that John's family might have had some influence, but, but that's about it. So, so you can imagine that at some point that maybe three or four or five of these guys are walking down the street and this guy says, hey, dude, look, look over there, apostles. He's like, where? What are you talking about? I don't see anybody. It's like, this guy's right there in that group. The, the, the guy's buying the fish. Like, those guys are apostles? Come on, you're, you're putting me on. I mean, they're, they're just average people. They're nobodies. Uh, we're expecting something big and impressive and glorious. Nothing. It reminds me of the time that uh, Jason Skidmore and I went to the uh, Desiring God uh, pastors conference a, a couple years ago. Uh, John Piper, the, the guy who's kind of the, you know, it's his ministry, right? And he's been on sabbatical for months and months and months. And this is his first time uh, speaking in public again. And uh, we're kind of, you know, we're down towards the front and we're kinda, Jason and I are kind of talking. And uh, the corner of my eye, I see Piper coming down. And I say, hey, there he is. He's like, who? I said, Piper. And he turns around and he says, where? I, I, see, I said, right there. He's like seven feet in front of you. And he goes, where? Oh. I mean, here's this short, balding, big, hook-nosed guy. I know you're not listening, John, but I love you. I mean, wearing a, a sweater that's ten times size is too big, it looks like going to swallow him up. Gray hair, goofy smile, and he's like practically leading all of Reformed evangelicalism in a single bound, right? He looks unimpressive. It's even worse for the apostles here because they're not pipers. They, 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 they sound like, well, he's impressive, even though he doesn't look impressive. They're not impressive. They are nobodies. Society will just pass them by and doesn't give a rip about them. And yet Jesus says, come on, you guys are my apostles. You're my team. You will be the most intimate friends that I have in the entirety of my life. Think about the privilege and the honor that these guys had to, to worship and to serve and to literally learn next to and at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what is the common thing that brings all these people together? It's one thing. Grace of God. 
because there's nothing in them that's desirable. There's nothing in them that would cause Jesus to say, you guys are going to take over the world with the gospel. There's nothing. And yet God calls them all to himself by his grace. Jesus didn't call people who were prepared for this kind of apostolic ministry. He called people who were unworthy men and he made them ready. And all of that should be incredibly encouraging to us this morning because what it shows is that there is no human standard for being part of Jesus' people. We we, we cannot look to our family or our, our cultural background, our political party. We can't even look to our past sins and say, I'm disqualified. I can't be a part of God's people. There might be some churches that say that, but they're wrong because Jesus will never say that. Jesus can take the the most vile, the most unassuming, the most wretched of men and women and say, you're mine. You're mine. Because it's not about us. It's not about who we are or what we do. It's about God's grace who comes into our life, redeeming us, transforming us that we might be fit for his kingdom. Jesus never says, you're not welcome here, go away. He always stands with open arms, calling his people to himself by grace. He called in diversity. Secondly, he called in fulfillment. All of that's just prelude to what is really amazing here. You might have missed it from verse 17. A great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, some of you will recognize the importance of Judea and Jerusalem, but what about Tyre and Sidon? I don't think most of you wake up in the morning thinking, I should go and review that map of Tyre and Sidon. Where was that at again? You don't have first-class A-level degrees in Palestinian geography. So look in the back of your Bible and the map. That's why, that's why they put it there or or. Let Google do your searching again like the phone book. But let me just tell you quickly, Tyre is the area up north where the tribe of Asher used to have its land in Israel, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Sidon is even farther up and actually out of the area that was ever part of the people of Israel. So what is Luke telling us here? Luke is telling us that, yes, there are Jewish people coming from all over Judea and and Jerusalem coming to Jesus and seeking to follow him. But there's Gentiles as well. There's people that would not naturally come to God, and yet he is drawing from these people as well. And notice, how many does he appoint? How many apostles? Twelve. Now again, it's not just like a whim. It's not like, you know, I'm going to count to ten and then add two more for, for luck. He just spent a night in prayer. He knows what God wants. It's intentional. And again, if you've read the Bible, you know why. All of Old Covenant Israel was founded, was organized around 12 tribes. And now here's Jesus about to begin his kingdom and he's organizing them around 12 apostles. And not just not just people that are coming in and, and being founded upon these 12 apostles from, from, from Jerusalem and Judea, but also from Tyre and Sidon. Gentiles are coming in. What what What... Luke is hinting at here. It's not fully developed. It will at the end of his gospel, at the beginning of Acts. But here he's, he's hinting, he's showing, even here, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham through Christ. And the new people of God is not just ethnic Israel. It is spiritual Israel. It is the spiritual descendants of Abraham drawn from every tribe, language, people, and nation. All who have faith in Jesus. And frankly, that should be good news for you today because as far as I know, all of us are going Gentiles. 
We, we have no hope of salvation except for the fact that God said, let's go global with this thing. It's not just the Jews anymore. All of the world will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here Luke is giving us just a hint of that. That this is not just restoring Israel to something they should have been. It is so far beyond that. He is building a new humanity, a new people of God, drawing us in. Why again? By His grace. By His grace. Finally, we see this new people of God. And the thing that defines them more than anything else is this. They are focused on Jesus. They are focused on Jesus. Listen again to verses 18 and 19. Jesus comes down from the mountain praying. He sets apart the twelve. And he's with a great multitude of his disciples and a great multitude of people who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. Who were the disciples with? Jesus. Who was the great multitude of people with? Jesus. Why did this crowd come together? To hear and to be healed by Jesus. Everything about this passage is about Jesus. And in case you didn't get it, all of Luke is about Jesus. Okay? So, so have you noticed that like for multiple weeks, the, 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 the little points in the sermon outline all start with Jesus did something or Jesus is something? It's because Luke is telling us the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole passage, everything is about Jesus. And likewise, we are seeing this new people are focused around, they're being brought together around this one man, Jesus. And that's exactly how it should be. The people of God have always been called to be a God-centered, a God-focused people. But now in this new covenant, God, we are told later, has supremely revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the face of Jesus. That's what the apostles say. And so now God the Father has given a place of preeminence to the Son, having Him lifted up, having His name magnified, that He might draw all men to Himself. And so what we see here is two things. First of all, we should be focused on Jesus in life. In life. This crowd is coming to Him because they know they need Him. They need healing, they need direction, they need life, and they know Jesus can give it. He is the healer of bodies, but not just of bodies. He is also the healer of our very souls. His words are not just wise or authoritative, they are life-giving words from the mouth of God Himself. And when we believe that this is what Jesus provides, then He becomes more than just a passing, passing fancy in our life. He becomes a supreme thing around which everything is focused, and everything takes a backseat to he becomes the one person we cannot live without the very focus of our life. But more than that, he should also be our focus in death. The people of God are focused on Jesus in death. Let's be honest, even as Christians, we don't, we don't like to talk much about death. It's kind of a socially unacceptable topic of conversation in polite public. We don't like death. Sometimes we're even scared of death. And on one level, some of that is legitimate. Death is our enemy. It is the fruit of sin. Even as God's people, the temporary pain of death is felt. But the Bible is clear, it will never have victory. It is never the final winner. One day, unless the Lord returns, my body's going to go in the ground. But the ground doesn't get to keep the body. It belongs to God because it's been redeemed by the blood of His Son. And therefore, one day when Christ returns, this body will come out of the ground and my spirit will enter into it again and I will never die again. 
That's the promise of the resurrection. But the question is, do we believe that to the degree that we have confidence now, even in the face of death? Do we, do we live fearlessly in the face of death, knowing it's not the end for us? Part of that fearlessness is seen in how we stayed, stay focused on Jesus right up until the end of our life. Do you know what happens to these guys that are listed here? I mean, have, have you read the accounts? They all died with their boots on. Every last one of them. They didn't retire. They didn't collect a pension from the church. They didn't try and ultimately deny Jesus in an effort to preserve their life. They all stayed faithfully focused on him until death. We don't have time for all the details, but let me give you a flavor of it. First, there's James. He was the first of the 12 to be martyred uh, after Stephen was. The church father, Clement, tells us that James actually had a best friend, similar to Judas, who betrayed him, who gave him up to the authorities. So this man is a Christian, and he deserves to die. This man was with James as they were traveling to the Roman tribunal because he was going to give testimony. And on the way, he began to be moved to grief and sorrow and repentance because of giving up James to the Romans. And so when they got there, he was filled with sorrow and he actually confessed first that he himself was a Christian. And then he turned to James and begged his forgiveness. And here, in front of this tribunal, in front of the executioner, James pauses. And then he turns to the man and says, peace to you, my brother. And he kisses him on both cheeks, and they all kneel down and are beheaded for faith in Christ. What about Thomas? Church tradition says that he preached to the Parthenians, the Medes, the Persians, the Carminians, the Heraclians, the Bactrians, and the Margians. But then he was tortured with hot plates before being burned alive in Kalaminia, India. Simon the Zealot, who was once zealous for the freedom of his people, became zealous for Christ and preached him in Egypt, Cyrene, Mauritania, Britain, Libya, and Persia. He was eventually killed in Syria when the governor there ordered his crucifixion. Bartholomew is said to have preached in India, translated the gospel of Matthew into their language, only to then be beaten, crucified, and beheaded. James the Lesser was appointed to be head of the church in Jerusalem for many years, and there he met resistance from very angry Jewish leaders who accused him of the same kind of blasphemy that they accused Christ of. And in an effort to get him to deny Christ, they took him to the top of the temple and threatened to throw him off. But James could never deny Christ, and so he was thrown off to his death. Peter's brother Andrew was also crucified. One Roman governor, Aegeus, asked permission from the Roman Senate to force all Christians to sacrifice to and honor the Roman idols. That's usually the kind of time that you go put your head in the sand and say, I'm not sure I want to confess that I'm a Christian. Andrew did the opposite. He went and he found Aegeus and he tried to witness to him and say, this is crazy, you shouldn't do this. In fact, you're worshiping false gods. You should believe in Jesus. And, and, and the man, the governor of Jesus, got, got so mad, he said, wait a minute, are you the same guy who's been running around from town to town converting people to Christianity and, and having all these temples of the Roman gods dry up? Guilty as charged, he said. And so Andrew was taken out and was crucified as well. Before the act of his murder, he was given the chance to deny Christ, to turn back, to renounce Christianity and worship false gods of the Roman Empire. And here's what he said. I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. That's a good last line. 
Matthew not only wrote his gospel for the Jews, he also traveled to Ethiopia and Egypt, seeing many come to faith, but by decree of Hyrcanius the king, he was speared to death. After years of preaching to the barber peoples, Philip was stoned, crucified, and buried with his daughter. Preaching the risen Christ to those in Mesopotamia in the midst of pagan priests, Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks. Peter was martyred under the persecution of the emperor Nero. The church historian Eusebius writes that such was the fury of Nero against Christians, that it was so intense that a man might see then cities full of men's bodies, the old lying together with the young, the dead bodies of women cast out naked without reverence of that sex in the open streets. All Christians. Such were Nero's cruelty and abominations that many Christians believed he indeed was the Antichrist. And John would write in the book of Revelation and say, no, he's not the one, but he is a little Antichrist, anticipating the final one to come. In the midst of all this, Peter was found condemned to die by crucifixion, and yet he said, I can't go out like Jesus. I'm not worthy. Do it upside down. Feet at the top, head at the bottom, because Christ is better. Lastly, there was John. The Romans tried to kill him by boiling him alive. But it didn't work, because he still had to write the book of Revelation. God preserved his life, but he was exiled into the island of Patmos. Eventually he was released and able to go back to the church of Ephesus, and he died of old age at nearly 100, but it was with a twisted and scarred body and the painful existence that he never got over from that attempt at boiling him alive. Not one, not a handful, not even half, but... All of them, save Judas the traitor who willingly took his life, all of them died faithful to Christ. How does that happen? How can, how can, you, look, how can you look like Andrew death in the face and say something so noble and not just be shivering like a baby, weeping because you fear death? How, how, how can you stay focused on Jesus right up until the end? It comes because they were convinced of a few things. First, that they were great sinners, but Christ was a great Savior. That though they deserved hell and the fullness of God's judgment, Jesus had bore it for them. They were convinced that Jesus was no near man, mere man, but God in the flesh, who had only died for their sins but was raised back to life. And they were convinced that in being raised back to life, God has established him as the one who has authority over all things. He is the king above all other kings. He is the Lord above all other lords. He literally stands sovereign over the entire universe, making sure every atom runs its course and that eventually grace will be given to his people and judgment will be given to sinners. When you believe that is true, it provokes within you a faithfulness in this life so that when you face death for Christ, it's just one more moment of faithfulness. Most of us do not look impressive. Most of us are not important in this world. Most of us, by human appearance, were not valuable for God to call us to salvation, and yet He did by His grace. And that is why... One Christian said that there is a hidden dignity to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Though the outside may not show it, there is an immense, immense privilege to be called to faith in Jesus and then to be sent to proclaim his name. This morning the the question is, 
are we loving and trusting? Are we looking to Christ in such a way that this kind of faith is provoked within us? See, Jesus tells this parable of the mustard seed and he says, it's just this tiny little bit of faith that moves mountains. What is he saying to us? He's saying, you know, you don't have to be this great giant of the faith. You just have to have a giant object of faith. And that's Jesus himself. Some of you are here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus. You've, you've, you've never repented of your sins and, and, and believed that he is the only one that can make you right with God. That he is the only one that can bring forgiveness for your sins and life with God. This morning is a time when you can look to Jesus in light of the life that he lived for you, the death that he died for you, and the resurrection that he experienced as a down payment for the resurrection of all his people. You can trust that he is the perfect savior to bring you to God today. Father, we are thankful for that truth. We are thankful that Jesus stands as Lord above all things. That God, he is... He is the one that we can put our hope and our confidence in that there is none greater than Him. And so, God, we can live fearlessly in this life. We can, live, we can live in wealth. We can live in poverty. We can live in good health and bad. We can live in peace. And we can live in danger because we know Jesus is Lord. He stands above all things and reigns in the heavens. And more than that, He loves us. And we know that he loves us and will care for us because he died for us. Father, may we see this great work of Christ in gathering his people together. And God, may we rejoice that we are a part of that people and join in the work of helping others become a part. And Father, for those that are here, that are not believers, who have not trusted Christ, God, may you open their hearts. May you open their minds to see the beauty of Christ as their Savior. That they might believe and follow him as Lord. We ask all this in his name. Amen.